In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson, and today I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Schofield from Melbourne University. This is the last of our series of interviews with clinicians and researchers, and uh, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I did a little bit of um, internet stalking of oh, you. No. Really? <laughs> I did because you know, no one other socially, but and I know what you do now. But it seems like you've researched a whole broad mix of things. How have you ended up where you are now? I think I kind of fell into it. Yeah. Um, I finished my PhD at UNSW mm-hmm. at the end of 2014. For that, there was a bit of a mess. Right. So. I started on an NHMRC, so National Health and Medical Research Council funded mm-hmm. project on alcohol and aggression. Okay. I did three quarters of a study on that mm-hmm. and realised that there was no way I was ever going to finish my PhD if every person in the study took three hours of my time getting them drunk, provoking them. Waiting for them to sober up yeah. and having to do telephone interviews to make sure the next person was eligible. So yeah, that's a long process. Yeah. And you need a lot of them as well. Yeah. So it just wasn't feasible. That, that's fair. I changed PhD topics, started another line of research. Yep. Then left social psychology entirely. Okay. There was only two jobs that I saw advertised in the whole year after I submitted my PhD. Mm-hmm. And I happened to get the one in the closest location to me. Yeah. And I was in Sydney at the time, and that was Canberra. But it also wasn't in psychology anymore. Okay. And I moved off into population health, studying welfare recipients. And it was meant to be their mental health. I've done a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. But it then turned into a project on stereotypes. Okay. And where have you ended up now? Now you're in Melbourne? Now I'm in Melbourne. Melbourne. Yep. Same research group that I was with in Canberra. Mm-hmm. Another project was funded, had the money to pay for my salary down in Melbourne. Nice. And I took the opportunity to move down. Very good. So what's the main focus of your research now? So the main focus of the main line of research yep. <laughs> is on the stereotypes of welfare recipients. Mm-hmm. And then we've been trying to map this out, but also kind of considering the downstream implications of this. Does this stop people from getting back into work? Uh, might it actually prompt people back towards employment? Mm-hmm. Does it affect their mental health? Okay. Things like that. So it's a bit broad. And it's kind of looking at that more population level rather than individual. Yeah. So we you can think of kind of stereotypes in two ways. Mm-hmm. Uh People stereotype groups that they're not a part of. Okay. But they also stereotype groups that they are a part of. So we look at uh, your stereotype. If you're not receiving government benefits Mm -hmm. from Centrelink, um, we look at your stereotypes of people that are receiving Centrelink payments. Okay. But we also look at Centrelink recipient stereotypes of themselves. And these could have quite different effects, right? Mm. Stereotypes... um, in the general community, 
completely different to... Yeah, or there could be overlap between the two. Yeah, okay. And so do you then look at the different effects of those different types? Not particularly? Uh, So we tended to focus a bit more on the stereotypes of the general community. Mm -hmm. We branched out a little bit from that in the project, but largely focused there. And what we've instead focused on is looking at kind of the variability in welfare stereotypes. Okay. So not every payment is stereotyped negatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your new start payment, which you receive for unemployment, yep. is stereotyped quite negatively. Okay. But age pensioners aren't necessarily stereotyped so negatively. Mm. We also look at uh, other varying factors among the welfare recipients and how that might stop, uh, overcome, or just simply not affect welfare stereotypes and the stigma attached to receiving welfare. Okay, yeah. So it's not a sort of generalisable thing to everyone who receives some kind of... No, it's really... Specific. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, welfare stigma is kind of... People can't see my fingers doing that. Nice. (laughs) Um, Welfare stigma is kind of this messy thing. We talk about it as if it's this one unified Mm. effect, but it's not. This is all really nation-specific. So in the US where you've got stereotypes of welfare queens, so single mothers who have children to receive welfare payments. Okay. Um, Not saying there's any validity to the stereotype, but that is one of the the exceptions that's there. So when you look at that group in that country, that's maybe what people are thinking of when you say welfare Mm -hmm. stereotypes and welfare stigma and our American reviewers of our papers reinforce that idea. Okay, they focus on that aspect. They focus on that aspect and go, you haven't really looked at welfare stigma Mm. because that's not their understanding of welfare stigma. Right. Whereas in this country, Mm. it's much more about unemployment benefit recipients. Okay. The idea of dole bludgers. Mm. The dole, as the Daily Telegraph has put in its headline a couple of years ago, dole bludgers too lazy to earn money picking up fruit. Yeah, there's a common narrative that... But if you look in other countries, who is meant by welfare recipients varies again. Mm. So when we look at welfare recipients, we focus on people with unemployment benefit receipt. Mm -hmm. But we also look at what happens in other groups. Okay. And then you kind of compare it across those those groups sometimes. Yeah, sometimes sometimes across those groups. Yep. But also then try and decompose it into what's going on. So the welfare receipt is a stigmatised characteristic that people receiving unemployment benefits have. But people receiving unemployment benefits also have other stigmatised characteristics. Mm -hmm. They're unemployed. And we know from other research and really cool field studies that send out resumes to real job applications that if you're currently unemployed, you're at a disadvantage to go to find a job. So we know that's stigmatised. We know that should have an effect on stereotypes. And we try and tease apart how much of the overall welfare effect due to the unemployment and then how much is due to the person being perceived as poor okay and try and work out how much is unique to welfare and what's all of those related characteristics that kind of co-occur yeah yeah how do you do that so it's a real mess we have found that perhaps the easiest way to do this Mm -hmm. and finding an easy way to do it is really important Research budgets are limited. You could do this much better. I'm sure you could. But when you design studies, you work with the budget you've got. Yeah, you work with those limitations. Yeah. Yeah. And even when you've got grant funding, the budgets are limited. Mm. 
So we have tended to do this through vignette studies. Okay. So what that means is we give you a short narrative about a person. Mm -hmm. We've tended to use the name John. I mean, it varies across all the studies, and often we use, like, 12 different names in a study. Yeah. Everyone just sees different Ethel, names. Mildred, yeah. Beatrice. We, we've tended <laughs> to stick to names that fit the, uh, of the characters in right. the stories. Funny that. But, you know, <laughs> We could go with Ethel. My yeah. grandmother would be happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Lothario. Don't have any Lotharios in the family. No, that's but right. that's all right. Shout out to all the Lotharios. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening. Um, <laughs> so we have short vignettes. They're probably a couple of hundred words. They tell you about uh, the name of the person, their rough age, their relationship status, their education, mm-hmm. what they're currently doing for work, or that they're unemployed or that they're unemployed and receiving government benefits due to their unemployment. Okay. And then we're moving around a lot of different parts in these stories Mm. so that participants don't really know what our focus is. So it's not as simple as this is John and he's receiving new start because he's unemployed. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We might also tell them that John went to the grocery store um, and then caught up with a friend for coffee and then later on on the weekend, went out to the park to see his relatives and had a great time socialising mm-hmm. with them. Oh, and then on the way home, he saw someone fall over and went and stood by them waiting for the ambulance. Okay, yeah. And then in the other case, John might have been playing video games all weekend, not really got up from the computer and then all the Chinese takeaway for dinner. Okay, yeah. And so we move all these different parts around and then look at the effect of welfare over and above all those other factors. Which... I mean, I'm just thinking through the amount of different variables and things that you would have in there would be massive. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> in some of the studies, we've moved around as many as nine parts simultaneously. Well, okay. Um, yeah. The way they're labelled on the computer is uh, study with 768 conditions. <laughs> okay. It's all yeah. Different combinations of all the factors. It yeah. really blows up, but. It's part of, it's really funny because you've only got like four focal conditions in most of the studies, four things that matter. Okay. And yet you've got all these hundreds of conditions to mask the purpose. The purpose, yeah. So how do you pitch it to people who are involved in your study? Like what's it, what's it focusing on? It's really vague and nondescript. Okay. But at the same time, completely transparent. Mm. We tell them we're looking at perceptions of people in society. Okay. Or, the percept- or the personality or the perceptions of other people's personality. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stereotypes we focused on have been personality stereotypes, the stereotypes of someone's character. Mm-hmm. And so we tell them up front what we're looking at, but not which part of a person we're looking at. Yeah. The character. Yeah. So does that mean then that you ask questions that are quite broad and tap into a whole bunch of different things that you're not necessarily looking at or that you're not yeah so we've tended to use some of the more common personality batteries short personality batteries Mm -hmm. because otherwise it costs us a lot more money for the participants but these provide a pretty good representation of characteristics like agreeableness Mm -hmm. openness to experience neuroticism extroversion and conscientiousness we also ask about how warm is this person Mm -hmm. so if you think about uh, warmth as answering the question of do you think this kind of person will be friendly yeah. towards you? Are their intentions good? And also how competent are they? So even if their intentions are bad, how capable are they of acting on those intentions? Mm. Okay. 
Interesting. And how many vignettes do people tend to uh, so we've tended look at? To, it depends on how many we think we can get away with before revealing that we're manipulating the welfare aspect. Usually the answer to that question is one or two because there's only so many levels of employment, unemployment and welfare you can get away with going through before you think someone's going to cut an arm. Yeah. We've never actually tested that assumption. But that, it feels about right, doesn't oh, yeah. it? Yeah. Especially when they know that you're looking at perceptions of people. It's one of the bigger things you can move. If you move age, I'm not, I just feel that's fairly innocuous. If you change the gender of the character, yeah. they gain think they think that's fairly innocuous. You suddenly change what someone's doing for work. Yeah. yeah, people start to notice a little. But I mean, maybe in the employment space, which is a lot of what these studies are around, people think about age and gender and race as quite salient characteristics because we think about those as characteristics that you discriminate. Yeah. On. We don't think about welfare necessarily. No. No. Even though it definitely happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of seen as something on the side rather than the main focus. Yeah. 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 So what kind of stereotypes have you found? So we've tended to... We actually haven't searched your problem. Okay. So a lot of the prior research focused on this idea that unemployed welfare recipients are undeserving of support Mm -hmm. and they're also lazy and dependent on the government. Okay. In looking at personality stereotypes, we've tended to find that welfare recipients are seen as unconscientious Mm -hmm. and people don't think they'll be good workers. And that's the main personality attribute that shines through. Mm. But it shines through over and above unemployment. It shines through over and above being poor. Yeah. And so there's something unique about welfare. Yeah. There's some effect over and above those other kind of correlated characteristics. Yeah. Whether or not the studies return something new and exciting each time probably depends on how you look at it. Mm. So we focused much more on... Things that might stop that stereotype happening, uh, be they different types of payments, be it um, the kinds of things the government might require of unemployment benefit recipients. So okay. as part of a mutual obligations program, you often mm-hmm. expect that, or the government expects people receiving new start to apply for jobs mm. or maybe uh, volunteer with local community groups to show that they're giving back yeah. or receiving money from the government. Whether or not you think that's right or wrong, we tested out the assumption that this might help them out. Mm-hmm. And in a paper we've got coming out, it's just they do. Mm-hmm. It's just that volunteering makes you be seen as more conscientious yeah. when you're a welfare recipient, but also if you're unemployed. Oh, mm. Also if you're employed. Yeah. Yeah, you're seen as more involved in the community yeah. and more, yeah. And it helps you out. Whether or not that's the case with employers mm. rather than the general community yeah. is a different and open question and the evidence we've got so far suggests that might not be the case. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And you can kind of see the flow-on effects that then that would have on people who are receiving welfare benefits in terms of looking for jobs and stuff like that if it's seen in a negative light over and above being unemployed or other things like that. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that uh, this idea of demoralisation mm. in and people just don't search for work if they kind of self-stigmatise. Yeah, and are the same kind of stigmas, like a self-stigmatising beliefs, are they the same for the, to what the general community thinks about people who are receiving? So oh, if I'm remembering our data correctly, 
Mm. This is always a worry when there's been so many studies. Mm. Um, just mentally cataloging yeah. things together. Um, in general, welfare recipients hold similar stereotypes, but don't hold them as strongly. Okay. Um, yeah. I think it would be a reasonable yeah. summation. Mm-hmm. Whether or not it has the demoralizing effect is a little bit more yeah. of an open question. So we've got some stuff showing that when welfare recipients hold more negative views, that they actually return to work faster. Hmm. Whether or not that is a causal relationship, and we've got every reason to believe that it's not, the data isn't causal. Yeah. That one. It does raise all these questions about the way we think about stigma. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So does the research that you're doing at the moment focus on stigma just in relation to welfare or do you, have you looked at stigma elsewhere? So there'd be some people that say that if you think about stigma as fitting into somewhere between attitudes Mm -hmm. and negative attitudes in particular and prejudice and discrimination, Mm -hmm. stigma sits somewhere in the middle. Okay. You need negative attitudes for stigma to emerge. Mm-hmm. You need negative stereotypes for stigma to emerge. And it can lead to prejudice and discrimination, which I, for all intents and purposes, think are the same. Yeah. Um, some definitions would have them as different. I just think it's different historical origins and mm. traditions of research. Different ways of viewing the same. Different ways of viewing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you view stigma as sitting there, then I've done some stuff around race. Mm-hmm. But we also do a lot of, even if it doesn't end up in the papers we write, contextualising these welfare stigma effects against other kinds of stigmatised characteristics. Okay, so what kind of things? So to understand this, it's kind of useful to think about what welfare receipt looks like as a characteristic. Mm -hmm. So welfare receipt changes over time. I think one of the recent conversation pieces did a fact check on Mm -hmm. this Uh, suggests that about 35% of people in a given year will benefit in some way from government benefits. So of all different types? Of all different types. I mean, it's targeted towards low incomes. Yeah. And so there's a massive skew there. But otherwise, there's a lot of people that Mm. receive it. But also people move off most forms of payments quite readily. Yeah. And so welfare receipt as a characteristic is variable. Yeah, it's not a stable yeah. thing. So you can, what we found in some of our research is that welfare stigma disappears as soon as you go back into the workforce, at least in our vignette sense. Okay, so it doesn't stick with you as a... It doesn't scar you. Hmm. It just marks you. And this makes it welfare yeah. receipt quite different to a number of other stigmatised characters. Absolutely. So if you think about, uh, there's been some studies of prisoners in the US that have had their convictions uh, overturned. Mm-hmm. They're still stigmatised as if they were convicted felons. Yeah. yeah. Same with ex-sex workers. They're still viewed mm. as if they're current sex workers. Yeah, that that's a permanent thing. So is there anything else that differentiates this group to other groups that might be stigmatised? I mean, one of the main things, I think, for welfare recipients is you don't really have to tell anyone or disclose it. Mm. Your friends might know you're unemployed, and they might make assumptions. But when you're walking down the street, you don't have this big Centrelink sign on your forehead. No. 
You don't experience the same kind of stigma as someone with a visible physical illness. Mm. In a way, it's quite a weird stigma to study. It is, yeah, because it's not also something that you have to disclose when you're going for a job or something like that. I can't tell you the results of this, but we've done some stuff recently looking at people with the power to hire and fire. Mm -hmm. So broad cross-section of people involved in making decisions about who to employ. And it took us probably about a year or so to work out how on earth you could realistically disclose that someone was a welfare recipient Mm. in that kind of employment context. Yeah. Because why on earth would you tell an employer, a potential future employer, Mm. that you were receiving government benefits if you didn't have to? Yeah. So you were between jobs. Yeah. And you probably leave it at that. Yeah, you can only imagine that it would come up in terms of people kind of filling in the gaps or going well you've been unemployed for this amount of time it's likely you've had some other support or something like that but it's not something that's asked or something that's explicitly spoken about to be asked no Um, i think the main way it comes up in what we've decided to go with in that line of work is when people are asked their motivations for applying Mm -hmm. for a job and we're typically considering um lower skilled jobs, entry level jobs, stuff without supervisory or management yep. roles, even though welfare often does affect uh, or is received by people uh, with that kind of employment history. Mm. And, you know, as a motivation in an interview, well, I really like this field or I've been wanting yeah. to get back into this field, but also I'm really trying to get off unemployment benefits. Mm. It's a reasonable it's a reasonable it's thing. Say, it's a reasonable motivation. And yeah. it may even be seen by employers as a commendable one. Mm. Uh, it shows that you're motivated. It shows that you're not like... I mean, this is part of that kind of perception of you as someone receiving government benefits is that we do have this stereotype. We do have this really quite negative stereotype that welfare recipients are door bludgers mm. and that they're rotting the system. And you can see this yeah. in any... It's everywhere. ...newspapers. Yeah. Uh left politically aligned right politically aligned it's all there absolutely Um, and it's always part of that general discussion about what should happen next with that system yeah Mm. and that's discussion i'm not going to get into (laughs) Um, but if you look at just the perception that that group has to deal with Mm. that strategy of revealing it in a job interview and going i'm not like the other welfare recipients yeah may be favorable whether or not that's actually really good in the long run. Yeah, you never know. Throw the rest of a group that you're part of under the bus. Yeah. But that's whole me as an outsider looking in and I mm. probably shouldn't comment <laughs> on that. It's a tricky one. It is. It is. Because you could see it going either way as being a positive or a negative, really. Yeah. And the results of the study will say when we finish processing all the data and everything. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't look like it's quite the same as the community attitudes. Yeah. And you mentioned that it's different depending on what kind of payment you're receiving. So are different groups viewed as, you know, more or less? Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of a a way to say that, but yeah. So we've been, most of the work we've done comparing different groups of welfare recipients has been uh, from this framework called the stereotype content model. Mm -hmm. 
it's been quite influential in social psych. I think the paper that proposed it has been cited over 2,000 times kind of thing. In so the it's last a big one. Years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the 50 most cited social psych papers of the last however many decades. Yeah. And what this model says is that there's two fundamental dimensions that people are stereotyped on, their mm-hmm. warmth and their competence. So their warmth being about their friendliness and their competence being about their ability to act on their intentions. I think I mentioned that earlier. That's really interesting. It makes sense in some ways, but then in another way it's quite, when you start to then apply it to different groups yeah. that could be stigmatised against, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's really interesting to think about because one of the ideas of this model is that only groups that are seen as warm and competent mm. are not stigmatised. If you lose one of those two things. So, uh, and I imagine that there'll be a bunch of people that totally disagree with this when I say it. Yeah. But this model would suggest that rich people are stereotyped negatively, likely Mm. to be stigmatised, and if you follow that through, likely to experience prejudice and discrimination. Because you drop out one of those. Yeah, so they lose So they're seen as competent. They're seen as able to achieve their goals mm-hmm. whether or not you think money buys that probably depends on the conversation like that. <laughs> yeah um but if you asked how friendly they are if you had someone that you knew was rich mm. and they entered your social circle mm. would you want to affiliate with them yeah if, and you're going to see them as unfriendly you're not going to want to affiliate with them yeah so, all of those kind of like yeah, snobby or distant yeah. kind of connotations start coming in. Exactly. And yeah. so it's really interesting when you start thinking about stereotyping from that perspective mm. and social stigmas and then the eventual prejudice from that perspective. It means that there's a lot more groups, a lot of advantaged and privileged groups mm. that from a social side perspective are experiencing at least some forms of stigma. Yeah. Are experiencing some forms of discrimination. Which you wouldn't think of otherwise. No. And does that mean that they've got as hard a lot in life? Absolutely not. No. But. Yeah. And the kind of flow on outcomes of that are likely to be different. But it's it's interesting. It's a different way of thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So we find, jumping back to how welfare recipients are seen through this, we find that if we just ask people to evaluate welfare recipients, they're seen as low in competence and low in warmth. And so okay. a lot of other people. This is the case across all the different types of uh, welfare systems. So mm-hmm. Australia is this highly targeted welfare system. Yeah. So we give a very small proportion of people at the bottom financially mm. and not very generous amount of money. In most of the Western European countries, they give welfare to a slightly broader proportion of the population and it's a bit more generous. Mm. And in Nordic countries, they tend to give welfare to a large proportion of the population, and it's actually really generous. It's a, yeah, it's a livable amount. Yeah. And across all of these groups, yeah, livable. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, across all of these countries, the welfare recipient stereotype is a little bit different, mm. but it's still low in warmth and low in competence. Huh. Individuals that get unemployment benefits are seen about the same. Across. Across. Actually, I haven't been able to look at that across, but... Um, hmm. At least in this country, yep. that's the case. Yeah. At the other end, you've got age pensioners mm-hmm. that are seen as high in warmth, typically as high in competence, yep. maybe on the cusp. Mm-hmm. So they're unlikely to experience much stigma. I suppose because that's kind of seen as something that or almost automatically kind yeah. of comes along unless you have a large amount of wealth. Yeah. 
that's kind of that'll be me someday that kind of yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. it's kind of a normative transition Mm. it's not seen as a failure of any normal uh social role would parenting be similar so different there's a little bit of data to suggest that it depends on which kind of parents okay (laughs) so we've got to differentiate here between partnered parenting payments Mm -hmm. and single parent payments oh i can see which way so yeah in both of these cases, they're seen more positively than unemployment benefit recipients, mm-hmm. more positively than the generic welfare recipient label, label again in inverted commas, yep. that single parents tend to be evaluated more negatively. Yeah. Now, whether or, we haven't been able to decompose with our data to date, even though it would be really nice to, mm. whether that difference is entirely explained by them being single parents and the stigma of single parenthood. Mm. Because this is this idea of additive stigma. Yeah. Most of the welfare recipient categories are experiencing multiple stigmatised identities simultaneously. Yeah, they've got multiple factors going on that has stopped them finding work or has gotten in the way of that engagement. Yeah. That's kind of one of the, hate to say coolest, in the context of talking about welfare stigma. <laughs> yeah. And I'm always mindful of doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, One go for it. One of the coolest things about the data we have on these different categories of payments is that most of the differences are explained by the underlying characteristic. Mm. So what I mean by this is the unemployment benefit stigma is explained mostly by unemployment. Mm. The stigma associated with receiving the disability support pension yeah. with because you've got a physical disability or because you've got a mental illness mm. are explained by the physical disability and the mental, mental illness, yeah. Again, by being a single parent, again, by mm. being elderly. So is there much change from receiving welfare at all? There still is a unique effect in most cases, mm. except for the elderly, where it doesn't really have much bearing. Mm. But, you know, most of it's due to the other things. Yeah. I thought that the unique part that was going to be related to welfare was going to be a fair bit bigger than it was. Okay, so you're kind of surprised that it, yeah. it wasn't for most. I mean, uh, my boss who's been doing welfare research a lot longer than I have mm. and has a background in uh, Department of Social Services before mm-hmm. going off into academia, is always quick to remind me that it doesn't matter necessarily. It matters that there's a unique effect of welfare. Yep. But what matters more is the overall stereotype of the welfare recipient. Mm. So it matters that we can identify there's something yeah. to do with them getting benefits, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day that pales into comparison with how they're treated yeah. regardless of the And for them that's not a separate thing. That's yeah. a part of a constellation of issues. Yeah. yeah. Hmm, interesting. So where are you kind of hoping this research will lead or can you see how it might be applied? I'm going to say yes and I'm going to say no. Yep. So I think... I'm going to say no, dwelling on... I mean, there's some really interesting and useful practical applications. Mm. But I'm going to say no. Personally, I can't really see where this is applied because of the short-term nature of funding and jobs in academia. Absolutely. I don't have a job in 40 days' time because Mm. as an early career researcher, your time's unstable. So I'm trying to get all my data sets annotated, Mm -hmm. wrapped up, package so it's ready yeah so i can made so i can hand them on yeah to my boss which is probably not something that a lot of people who don't work in psychology or research would know that there's that kind of yeah instability 
it, it's so not it kind of came to the fore in the media in the mm. last couple of weeks yeah. when it turned out that um the former education minister simon Birmingham, birmingham I, I yeah that's his name. i think so um I've only ever heard him referred to as Burmo, so yeah. who knows? Yeah, classic <laughs> Australian way of referring. Um, but when he was education minister, he vetoed some of the recommendations for humanities funding. Yeah. So for early career researchers, these are people within the first five years of getting their PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people that are more established and people that are really quite senior. Yeah. You know, and it would be frustrating to be in that position. Mm. But then more generally for early career researchers, the advice you're kind of given is you apply everywhere in the world Mm -hmm. and you get ready to move at a moment's notice. Yeah, to wherever the money is. To wherever you can find a job. Yeah. Because if you want a research-oriented job rather Mm. than a teaching-oriented job, Mm. you're probably going to have to spend five years after your PhD moving around as a postdoc. Yeah, and each of those postdocs will be one to three years, and probably in a different city, mm. if not a different country. Yeah, so you're going to move around a bit. You're going to have to root your life, take or lose your partner. Yeah, and off you go. Off you go. Yeah. yeah, which is definitely not, I don't think, the public kind of picture of no, what what it would be like. Ivory Tower. Yeah, I'm sure, there's some at the senior levels and. There's definitely some at the senior levels yep. that have that ivory tower. And have that stability and that, yeah. But I think that's the same in any industry. Absolutely. It's probably much more a generational thing. So it's totally going outside the bounds of my research. Of course, expertise. yeah. I mm. think it's just that, um, I, so I'm 30. This, yep. My generation's experience of work. Yeah, is entirely different. Is entirely different to what came before and so... I watched my dad, who's an academic, Mm -hmm. have that kind of much more traditional, what I was expecting, research experience. That more linear kind of, you do this, then this, yeah. And I think it was in place till even my PhD PhD supervisor's cohort kind Mm -hmm. of coming through. It was probably one of the last ones that had that type of experience Mm -hmm. where you could go through in that straight pathway. So would that be one of the main challenges of your work, that kind of shifting around, or is that a benefit? I'd say it's a massive challenge. Mm. I think it's a challenge because an expectation... I mean, psychology is a really weird case. So psychology degrees in this country, you do your three years, yep. then you do your honours year. Mm. And after your honours year, a lot of people wanted to get into clean masters, and that is ultra competitive these yep. days. You want to begin an honours mark upwards of 90% and yep. that is hard. Hmm. Some people miss out on clean masters. Yep. Some people just want to be researchers. Yep. And their honours supervisors recruit them into doing a PhD. Mm-hmm. And they go, well, I don't really want to go off into the real world yet. Yep. I'm not ready to go off and get a proper job. So this works. So this works. Hmm. I get paid a scholarship. It'll be perfect. It'll be hmm. great. But they, they are kind of warned about... What happens after that? Yeah. yeah. What happens after you agree? They aren't warned about the stress Mm. and the amount of time that it takes and that you cut off half your friendships by the end of your third year. Yeah. They aren't warned that if you finish your PhD, which most people do, Mm. and most people that don't, 
seem to leave at the end of the first year. Yeah, quickly. Realising that it's not for them. Mm. But it's really uh, exercising stubbornness. Yeah. Than <laughs> I quite like that. Oh, that's so true. That's the only difference between those of us that finish and those of us that don't. should be given out as a bridge magnet in the first year. Yeah, like a degree in stubbornness. Yeah. It's a PhD, a PHS. Um, so you do that. And then you get to the end and there's all these jobs. Mm. You've got no certainty for the last year. Is Your supervisors have are of that generation prior and have that experience that you've got to start applying for postdocs now. Mm-hmm. And you're there going, well, shit, I've got a partner. Yeah. Does my partner's job allow them to work anywhere else? Mm, are they willing to move yeah. somewhere else? What will happen? So, yeah. When I was doing my PhD, I shared an office with someone that was a really good researcher, really methodical, mm-hmm. applied for a bunch of academic jobs, had a bunch of interviews overseas, mm-hmm. was in a relationship with a person who is fantastic but whose job limits where they can work. Mm. Their job is specific to Australian legislation and the only kinds of places that have a need for someone with that particular legal expertise is in Sydney or Melbourne. Right. So you're now limited to Narrowing down. Right universities. Yeah. There's no jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Finding something is... Yeah, you've got to make that choice. Do mm. I leave my partner? Mm. Or do I leave academia? Yeah. And in her case, she chose academia. Yeah. There's a lot of people that choose the other way. Yeah. But no one warned you that you've got to make that decision. No. No, it's not framed that way. It's framed as, oh, good, you've chosen a research career. Because it's a pyramid. Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> I like We try not to tell people, but it but, really is a pyramid scam. Yeah. So you're outing the entire institution yeah, of research. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like the honesty. <laughs> well, thank you for chatting to me about your work and, and the pyramid scheme of research. So I'm glad we could end on that. I, I think so. I think it's a good one to end on. You reckon? It seems yeah. to fit. So we're going to take a quick break and then I did find an article that I think you'll like. So we'll come back for that. <laughs> See you soon. Suggest reasonable explanations. Thank you for listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Uh, in the middle bit, we ask everyone to be nice to us. Uh, <laughs> Tim's not a fan of that idea. <laughs> He's refusing to be nice to me. Uh, so could you please, please, please like us on every social media platform possible. Send us pretty things in the post. Uh, send us emails. Send us pictures of your cats. Or just give us a five-star review on iTunes or visit our website. Everything's at Two Shrinks Pod. Our email address is twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Love comments, questions, things like that. So please get in touch. All right, back to the show. Welcome back. And we're going to finish up the show with an odd article that I came across. Uh, you're a fan of gin, right? Yes. <laughs> Jim had to pause to check that. <laughs> Your empty gin glass does suggest you're a fan. I'm a fan of gin. Yeah, me too. Did you have about like a year or so ago all these people on Facebook tagging you in a thing saying that you must be a psychopath because you like gin? They normally tag me in the you must be a psychopath because you like coffee. Okay, so it comes from the same study. Okay. So I got too many people tagging me in that and saying, this must be you. 
because you drink too much gin. That's so nice. Exactly. This is all cold, calculating and callous. Apparently. I know. Yep. Yep. That's why we get along. But so I wondered if that actually was a proper study or one of those... You know, yeah, you never believe the 10 things that mean you're a psychopath, you know. So I went looking and it exists. And so you're going to tell me about it. I'm going to tell you about it. So I found a study. It's called Individual Differences in Bitter Taste Preferences are Associated with Antisocial Personality Traits. It was from 2016. So that's probably why everyone started harassing each of us in 2016. So they talk about how there's a uh, appetite. Okay. Yeah by someone whose name I cannot pronounce and Greitmeyer. I can pronounce the second one. Can we just reverse the authorship? No, that's a big no-no. Well, second one's often senior, so... Mm, yeah. Well, last one's often senior. Yeah, there's only two of them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so they talk about how that there's kind of a survival basis to not liking bitter food, that we're supposed to kind of reject okay. it, thinking that there's some kind of poison that, you know... There's some... Also, first, every time someone says survival or evolutionary basis, I just think... bullshit and yeah. turn out. Uh, but in this case, I can kind of buy that argument. It kind of makes sense if you found something weird in the forest. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. even out if it tasted bitter. Yeah. I mean, if it's gin. Even I like bitter. Yeah. In so, the forest, it's bitter out. Yeah. So tasting something sweet, apparently previous research has shown that it increases your agreeableness. And your oh, intention God. to do nice okay. things. So, but then what does that mean? So this is this. <laughs> and, and just really thinking about how much to, given that my name was given earlier on in the podcast, what to say about my thoughts on embodied cognition, which is where that idea. Why did we not start here? No, why didn't we start here? <sighs> so, okay, sorry, Laura, we're going to continue. <laughs> So this is the holding something hot makes me, me feel warmer yeah and be warmer and then more friendly yeah this idea of embodied cognition yeah there's not many strong tests of the hypothesis no no and we all have those kind of associations but is that actually because it's at the level of language because mm. we have an experience so we tried I say wait. I tried to do a set of studies probably about four years ago. Yeah. Looking at the idea that an anger red link. Okay, so yeah. Anger, anger is saying red. Red, yep. And I ran into the original researchers at a conference mm. and kind of asked, so, hey, you didn't note in your paper, but did your participants know that when you were trying to make them angry, yeah. what you were testing is your outcome? They're like, oh, yeah, they all guessed it. So, okay, hmm. so why didn't you put that in your paper? And then I went off searching and did about seven studies that have stayed in my file drawer and have never seen the light of day, partly because the two of them I messed up the coding and so they're Bugger. not quite perfect experiments. Yep. They're fine as part of a package. And but on their own. making it better and better and better methodologically yeah. to come to the point that, you know what, anger doesn't make people see red. Anger doesn't make them more sensitive to red. Yeah. It just it makes just... them more biased to say that everything is red. Yeah, because, because that's the expectation. Really... Yeah, and the yeah. same thing is probably... Prob- yeah. I haven't read this study. No. But same thing's probably happening for the sweet... It's quite possible. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the association we have. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty strong one. Yeah. 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 So... Things are nice. My grandmother is sweet. It's sweet. she gives me sweet things. Yeah. And it's all nice. Mm, it's all lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What 
these researchers wanted to know was that would a kind of association between bitterness and kind of negative things hold over time? So a general preference for it, would it, would that relationship remain the same? So not just after you tasted it, but your general preference so for... So if I like bitter things, then I tend to be negative? Mm, you tend to have these range of traits that they're, they're looking at. So they wanted to look at antisocial traits. So they looked at the dark tetrad and then the big five personality traits. Uh, and then they also asked about interpersonal aggression and then agreeableness. They did two studies, one where they had 40 different foods. They asked about 40 different foods, 10 per category of sweet, sour, bitter and salty, and then asked them about how much they liked each thing. So they kind of had a sample of things, a sample of types of foods in each yep. category. They found that preferring things from the bitter category uh, was associated with psychopathy, everyday sadism, trade aggression, and then negatively with agreeableness. And they also found that sourness, a preference for sourness, was correlated with aggression and everyday sadism as well. And then they decided, well, we're going to exclude sour and salty from the mix, and we're going to reduce the list down. Sour and salty have pretty much the same effects with their linguistic associations. You would assume so. Salty didn't didn't have a didn't have a place. So you said that they interesting. Like you described the design hmm. and there's so many different things going on. Yeah. And one of the Look, I'm a little bit bad with this in my research. Mm. Um, you should correct for multiple comparisons. Yeah. So the kinds of statistics we use assume should. that you're making one. one test. This to this. If you're making what, forty different groups and something or other, as a rule of thumb, you need a significance test that gives you a p-value that's divided by four tiny yeah of what you're aiming at yeah and rarely do studies particularly in the diet domain make this correction yeah so <laughs> yeah so the second thing that they did was they did the same kind of survey same thing except they used a smaller list how many people haven't got that with me. I'm sorry. I'll stop I know. asking the hard questions. No, I haven't. I didn't bring it with me. Normally I do. That's okay. So it was an online survey and they excluded sour and salty, just kept sweet and sour. And they excluded some of the things that people kind of didn't as strongly associate with, with sweet yep. or so things that people add things to. So like coffee, yes, it's a bitter taste, but if you have that with milk and five sugars, you're not actually drinking a bitter thing. So they kept it to pure bitter, pure sweet. Tried again, and they found a similar result. So bitter foods positively associated with psychopathy and everyday sadism, negatively with agreeableness. And then... Those mixed foods so interesting. They are. Because then shouldn't you have someone that is giving you the high psychopathy measures, high agreeableness measures, which don't go Go together. Usually. Yeah. And shouldn't... That Is show it up. Predicted by the model? You would hope so. But no. I know. Yep. And then they also found Machiavellianism and narcissism were also then now in the mix as yeah. positive in their but multiple also, regression. All those four are so highly correlated anyway together that you need to model it in a really particular way that if they're not correcting for multiple comparisons and by everything else you're saying makes it sound mm. like they Yeah. And I am quite happy to go with your scepticism because I don't think I'm a particularly psychopathic, sadistic 
Look, Human. I, mean, I don't know if this is the time. <laughs> That's true. What I get up to. But you're actually telling the truth on this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's not enough proof for you to think that your bitterness preference. I mean, this is why I'm a bad scientist and I stop reading most articles. Um, I read on an as-needed basis now yep. because I find reading most studies a bit too depressing. The amount of negative affect I experience in response to reading a paper yeah. is basically correlated with how much media attention it got. I think that's fair. I think that's um, fair because I often, when I see things like this getting a lot of publicity, my first response is to roll my eyes yeah. and then it's to pick holes in it Yeah, and depending on who shared it out in the public... Depends on whether I go further to reassure myself that it is not, in fact, true. Yeah, it depends on which friend. It yeah. It's the friend that says something about, gives a Marilyn Monroe quote, does anything like that, you know. Have you, by the way, come across the Still New Age? The, no, no, it's a, it's not, it's a website <laughs> called the New Age Bullshit Generator. No, but it sounds amazing. It's a website where they've coded a whole bunch of different new agey words and sentence structures, and then you just press it and a random quote comes up that fits all of those things that would be on those posters. It's so satisfying. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm going to have so much fun later. Yeah, yeah, it's great. You can just spend hours there. I know, I'm not going to bed tonight. No. <laughs> well, thank you very much for chatting to me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's nice. Thanks very much. See you next time which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things.